you're listening to Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by Black feminist sociologist Jacqueline Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation, and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. Today's discussion is with Erin Green, a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland, College Park. Their research interests include Black studies, community literacy, activism, storytelling, and abolition. They love teaching college and writing centers and spend their free time watching TV, online shopping, and reading horror novels. today with Erin Green. Thank you for joining us. So before we go ahead and get started and get to know more about you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you're doing, where you are, what your research is about, and what got you into graduate school? Yeah, hi everyone. Um, I'm currently a third year PhD candidate at the University of Maryland, College Park. And I am in our area group for language writing and rhetoric, so like rhetoric and composition. And my research is about community literacy practices, black queer literacies, uh, abolition, prison police abolition practices, and just general like pedagogy and writing program administration. And I got into academia because I uh, just really liked the idea of teaching, and once I got to grad school and I started teaching, I liked parts of grad school even more, and that that part was teaching, so I'm mostly in it for the teaching. Were there particular um, professors that influenced you to go into grad school, or did you see things that you did not like in college, and <laughs> you're like, there has to be a different way to do this? Yeah, I, so when I was an undergrad, everyone kept telling me that I was going to end up being a college professor, and I was like, no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> um, and I joined this program called the McNair Scholars Program, which is a program to help uh, first-gen, uh, low-income, and students of color to might want to, like, go to graduate school. Because at the time, I did want to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to go to grad school to get an MFA in creative writing. Mm. And then I took a creative writing class in undergrad, and I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Um, but I was already in that program, and someone said, maybe you should think about getting a PhD. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll consider it. Um, and then I started to do, like, research projects in undergrad, and I was like, okay, this is what grad school is like, then I think I might like getting a PhD. And so the McNair Scholars Program helped me, like, get prepared for grad school, what, like, research is about. And at the time, I was like, I guess I would like teaching I was working in a writing center, and I was like, well, I like tutoring, so if I like tutoring, I probably will like teaching, combine teaching, and research, I should probably go to grad school. Yeah. And I didn't have a plan <laughs> for anything else. I was like, I guess I could become an editor, but by that point, like, maybe, like, my second to last year of college, I was like, I don't want to be, I already worked as an editor, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, so 
grad school it was i like how you go through this process of elimination you were like mfa tried it wasn't for me mm-hmm. editor tried that wasn't for me and so how do you like your teaching career so far and also your research tell us more about that because you're really you're downplaying it it's interesting. <laughs> Uh, so teaching, I have taught, uh, like, the first-year writing classes, I've taught an upper-level technical writing classes, I've taught, like, a social media rhetoric class, and I've also worked as a graduate writing program administrator. I like teaching, I like students, they're so fun, they're, um, at first I didn't think that I was gonna have, like, a kind of, like, I guess parental attitude about them, but I do. I think of them like as like my children because I think <laughs> they're so cute. But I like creating a syllabus and designing things, and I'm like, okay, maybe my students like like this. I want them to learn all of this stuff that like I didn't get a chance to learn or things that I might want to learn more about. And it's fun to read their work and see them like just absorb the information that I'm like putting in front of them and like question it and think about it reflect on it and give like their own opinions about it and of course I my research is not even like I would say maybe like uh, traditional normative research Um, I'm doing stuff that's like CRT counter story Mm -hmm. I'm talking about abolition which is like not really as talked about in the academy I am like, doing topics that I feel like maybe, like, 20 years ago probably were not, like, topics that, like, people would want to, like, talk about. Like, I'm currently, like, in the process of trying to, like, write a paper about Drag Story Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I feel like because those are, like, my research interests, they inform, like, how I'm teaching because I want to bring in stuff that is not, like, the same old dusty, <laughs> you know, Aristotle and all that classical stuff that doesn't really speak to me as a black person so I like to bring in stuff that's contemporary and like relevant and I think that informs how I teach and usually my students like it so so if you are feeling comfortable how much pushback do you think you've received that have been blatant in your face or things you've reflected like maybe years later you're like oh that was actually racism (laughs) you know because sometimes it's not Mm -hmm. as in your face as um some may think it is it's like it's disrespectful Mm -hmm. um but it's you know we don't know what angle but with you bringing in contemporary studies and bringing in these different frameworks and perspectives and kind of you know putting aristotle to the side which is quite hard to do in academia. Not because for me. It's literally every <laughs> classroom you go to, there is like this haunting white man. It's like, why yeah. are you here? But uh, <laughs> how did you get here? But how did you deal with that? What, what were some of your experiences? Um, so I feel like my first experience that I had in grad school that I felt was um, harmful, I won't say it was racist because it was another black man, but um, I was, it was like my first semester and I was kind of uh, weighing with the fact that I was like, I don't think I can be a literary studies scholar. I can't do literature. I don't think I want to do that. And at the time I had a literature, <coughs> sorry, I had a literature 
uh, faculty member as my like mentor, and I told him that I was like I think I'm thinking about switching over to rhetoric and composition because I worked in a writing center. I would love to direct one one day, mm. and it just feels more in line with like what I want to study. But I told him I was like, but I'm still going to do black studies. I'm still going to do African-American studies. That's still going to be centered in my work. Mm -hmm. It just, I won't be, like, reading, like, novels and doing, like, critical theory and literary theory and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And he, when I think back on it now, I feel like he kind of infantilized me Mm -hmm. and spoke to me as, like, a child and not as, like, a colleague because at this point in graduate school, since I'm doing the same work as professors and we can end up being on the same papers together same conference panels co-teaching classes at that point we're, co- we're colleagues mm-hmm. like you have the possibility of citing me in your work so mm. we're colleagues and I feel like at that time he was even though he was my mentor I did not feel that he was speaking to me um as a colleague and he told me um he said what did he say um Sometimes when we see a bright, shiny object in the distance, uh, when we're feeling really bored, we're inclined to go and, like, catch that shiny object. Mm. But that doesn't mean that's actually, like, what you want to, like, do. And so he was telling me that I was just feeling bored academically and that I found something new that I wanted to try out, which was rhetoric and composition in his opinion, despite the fact that I had taken comp classes in undergrad, worked in a writing center, half of my letter recommendations were from people who were in the field, and he just decided to also ignore the fact that I said I'm still going to do black studies. Mm. So um, it ended up really, it actually ended up hurting my feelings, and Mm. I felt that uh, I was like, oh, maybe I'm not meant to be in grad school, because if I stay in literature, I was like, I don't think I can make it. Mm -hmm. I had just come from an internship, uh, from an Ivy League, um, and I remember the faculty mentor that I set up with, he had asked me, he was like, have you read Moby Dick? And I was like, no, I have not. And he asked me how to read some other, like, canonical works, and I was like, I haven't. And he was like, and you're a senior English major? And I was like, yes. And he said, well, if you haven't read these canonical works, you won't get into grad school. Mm. Um, I read the first sentence of Moby Dick, <laughs> and I did not read the rest of it, and now, here I am now. So, um, yeah, I feel like a lot, it, a lot of stuff is just people trying to either enforce tradition mm-hmm. upon me or try to downplay my, um, my, like, desires for whatever reason that may be. And I I don't really care about their opinions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to do what I felt was best for me, and I'm happy that I made the decision to like not listen to them. So, and it's and it's wide. Like writing is wide. Like from literature to rhetoric to I don't even know all the different types. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I do know, for example, even though we may both be in English complete, well, I'm in complete. You're in English housed underneath the same. Mm-hmm. Um, we still need people everywhere. (laughs) The perspectives are going to be different. So it's, I don't know. I don't see it as much of a, oh, this is a loss for literature. It's like you, or you could see it as it's a gain for rhetoric because we still need, you know, frameworks to be implemented in that Mm -hmm. side. And 
can you tell us a little bit more about at least how you view the difference between literature writing and that critical <laughs> writing? And no, go like you know, uh-huh. you, and and when you're speaking about like rhetoric and composition and how this is not just oh how to write an email or how to like this is another type of facet that affects people's lives beyond mm-hmm. academia just you know in so many different ways so can you talk to us a little bit more yeah i so i um i the reason why i feel like i kind of made this i guess split i came in and for me i knew that i wanted to focus in black studies mm-hmm. and um i I think one of the DGS at the time asked me, like, if you could write a dissertation or anything right now, like, what would it be? And I was like, oh, I'd probably write it, like, maybe, like, on, like, Jordan Pills films mm-hmm. and, like, maybe, like, black people in horror films. Or maybe I might write it on, like, black people in social media. Or, like, I might... I was thinking about things outside of just, like, like a novel or, like, mm-hmm. poetry. And um, the advisor who who had told me that crap was, like... <laughs> you can still do all of those things in literary studies. Like, you're not just confined to just studying a novel, mm-hmm. which is which is true. Um, the issue was, is that I did, I would be happy to do all those things, but I knew I would still be constrained to having to, like, study those novels. And, like, I think those are important novels. Like, I've read Toni Morrison, great author. I've read um, so many, like, black african-american canonical literature like Mm -hmm. works and they're all good works i just don't (laughs) want to like write about them and i didn't want to study them and then i just felt like i did not really fit in with like the conversations about like literary studies i just it the theory just like went over my head i didn't (laughs) understand it and i felt like for me i can't remember um I think I, it was a professor who was talking about, who was in rhetoric, and they were talking about, like, the black rhetorical tradition and about um, the Negro Motorist Green Book mm. um, and about how that was, like, a technical document and it had a rhetorical purpose. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting to me. And that was, like, one thing that I was like, I probably wouldn't have been able to like study that in literature, mm-hmm. uh, just because it it, I maybe possibly, but probably maybe not. And then also, I got really invested in like this idea and concept of like linguistic diversity and linguistic mm-hmm. justice, and like conversations around like black language. And I was like, okay, this is falling very heavily into like you know, rhetoric and composition, and like. Well, they say I can do anything I want in literature. I don't, like, <laughs> at that point, if I'm studying all these concepts and, like, rhetoric and composition, I was like, I might as well just claim that as, like, my mm-hmm. field. So for me, I would say the difference is that I am studying, like, uh, I don't study too much of rhetoric, but I study, like, uh, literacy, um, how people read, how people write, I study like how communities write, specifically black communities. Um, I am invested in like the teaching of writing, which I felt like for me, I was like, I love teaching, I love pedagogy. And like 
obviously literature professors are teachers, but they don't really write about like how to teach literature like at all or that much. Whereas like writer and composition, they're really focused on like how do we teach? What is pedagogy? Mm-hmm. And those are things that I was really invested in. And I was like, I mean, I guess I could like be a writing center director and also like teach literature, but like if I want to study like writing writing center theory and practice, I'm also just go over to like writer and composition. Yeah. So I feel like it was mostly the the like uh, emphasis on pedagogy and teaching mm-hmm. that I was like really invested in, and also I feel like I can kind of do anything i could literally just say rhetoric of and just put a title in front of it (laughs) and just call it a project whereas Mm -hmm. i couldn't really do that in literature yeah so with literature you're you're looking at more so the theories but i do understand it's there is a distinction and there's a difference but what's important for me or at least what i remember learning from you was do you remember when you did um, that presentation with the view, uh, yes. and you did <laughs> you did the rhetoric of the and you how you broke it down and you you really zoomed in on Megan McCain mm-hmm. and you were like let's pay a little bit more attention to mm-hmm. her. Um, so how do you think? I guess your experiences so far, how have they grown, or how have your ideas shifted? while you've been in grad school and you're thinking about like rhetoric and literacy and the pedagogy for um, how to, when you're making a syllabus and such, what has changed? What are you still thinking about? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about those things. I think what has changed most is, and this is like pretty much like a lot, half of my dissertation, <laughs> is I've come to realize how harmful of a space classrooms are and just how, like, violent sometimes they are for, like, students of color, especially black students. And I have tried to put myself in a position as, like, like, I went in, I was like, oh, I had some great professors, and I'll try to, like, emulate, like, what they had. But then as I began to sit down and think about, like, my teacher ethos and, like, what I wanted to contribute to, like, teaching and how I wanted to run my classroom, I was like, there are some things that are just, like, not clicking in my head. For example, I'm like, why am I taking off points for students for, like, writing a certain way? Mm -hmm. Or, like, why am I saying you only get three absences in my class? Or, like, why you know, um, why am I only allowing students to get participation from, like, just, like, verbally speaking in class? Mm -hmm. And so these were things that, like, I knew that, like, when I was in college, I was like, wow, I hate that, like, I only get, like, I had a professor who said, like, you only get, like, two absences the entire semester, (laughs) whether it's excused or unexcused. And she Mm -hmm. was like, don't ever use the absence if you just think that you're going to, like, you know, like, oversleep or you're tired or you don't want to come to class. They should only be used for, like, emergencies. And I was like, I have a life. So. <laughs> it's very wide. I, yeah. <laughs> so I remember um, thinking there was, like, one day that I was, like, I just, I was not, like, physically unwell, but I was like, I just cannot go to class today. And I was like, I'm just not going to go to class. And that was, like, one absence that I used. And mm-hmm. then, like, had another time where like I did actually have a family emergency but then there was a third time I was like I really don't want to go to class I just don't feel well but I had already used it up and she was like well I'm going to take off points for like the final grade if you decide to skip class skip class Mm -hmm. um and so I was thinking to myself well how can I teach and not like be 
harmful to my students. And it's a controversial opinion, what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I, I had a student one year that I was teaching. He came up to me and he said, I'm sorry that I turned in my paper late. I am a, I'm an engineering, one of the engineering school majors. And I'm in a calculus class right now. And I'm like really struggling and I'm failing. And if I don't pass this class, if I don't pass this like next test, then like I'm gonna like be like kicked out of the program because I have to, this is a required class. And he was like apologizing to me about turning in on paper like late. And I was like, I, it, it, I'm not offended that you turned in the paper late. Mm -hmm. Like, like if my paper <laughs> is stopping <laughs> you from being able to like graduate with the major that you want, then like you can take priority over that exam. Like the paper can wait. I'm not gonna be offended if you turn in a paper like a day late. Like mm -hmm. that's like what kind of like what is the point of me as an educator if I am like being like no my class is the most, most important thing in the entire world mm -hmm. and I don't care what you're doing in your other classes I don't care if you're failing you need to have my paper in on time it's like well what's the, like what is the point of like education yeah. if I'm like stopping a student from like and I've always I'm like is the, are you trying to teach me a lesson <laughs> <laughs> I'm like or are you gonna be grading this paper right here no. right now because <laughs> I know I didn't I know I, I did not grade no. all those papers right here and right now so it's it's like what is what is the goal exactly? <laughs> I think it's just to punish them and just to have control over students and people take it as like a personal attack against you when your students like oh, I'm not I'm like, I need to like I need to prioritize like if we're being realistic there is no possible way students can like have time management to every single class that they're taking equal amount of time. Because some stuff is more difficult than others. Some stuff is easier. There are some classes I'm like, I don't even need to read for this class. I, do, I can do the assignment with the day before. But then there's other classes I'm like, I need to spend, like, when I was in undergrad, I was not about to graduate because I was failing a Spanish class that I needed to graduate. And I started the class with an F. I had to get two tutors mm -hmm. to, like, even pass with, like, a B. So the other class, I was like, I can just breeze through this. So I feel like it's understandable to expect students to prioritize different classes because mm -hmm. that's just like natural and i mean we do that in our everyday life, life even right? as like you are going to prioritize exactly things. and if everything is a priority you will end up in the er exactly so that's how i feel and i'm like <laughs> if you need to prioritize something else over my class i will not be offended my class is like as much as i would love for all of my students to prioritize my class in the grand scheme of things i'm like I mean, I am not that special in the world for y'all to be sacrificing your health, mental health. Your class your is special, class. though. You know, it you, is. You put the effort in. I do. <laughs> but, like, don't die for my class. Don't <laughs> fail out of college for my class. So. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think the the times I, I remember when I, so when I was teaching the English 101, I would always emphasize, like, communicate with me, communicate, mm -hmm. communicate. Like, everything can be sorted out through communication. What's when it becomes dangerous is like when you just don't hear from the person at all mm -hmm. and then they come to you at the very last moment you're like where have you been yeah. <laughs> you know so um but yeah just yeah the whole dying for class and that's why now it's like with covid that's when people realize well don't show up sick anywhere i know <laughs> yeah the whole like it makes it makes me think back to like in elementary school and like we got awards for like perfect attendance. I know. I was that's like, why I are we coming to class <laughs> sick? 
Yeah, and you know, even noticing, I can see it with my mom, like, we were never allowed to miss a day of school. Mm -hmm. No matter what was happening, whether there was a death, whether your heart was about to be, whatever it was, you had to show up. And you know, and I can see the change with my mom, like, now she'll take a day off when she knows, like, she's done too much. I'm like, look at you. (laughs) Look (laughs) It takes a lot to be like, I don't think I can, like, you know, hand, like, I need mm-hmm. a day today. Um, I also did see a Twitter conversation the other day where <laughs> someone tweeted and they said, taking a mental health day does nothing. Like, taking one day doesn't do anything. It's a way of avoiding your responsibilities. I was like, well, isn't that a luxury to think that? Like, you know, and so now I've just been like, that's a luxurious way of thinking. If that works for you, you know, it's probably because you can afford to not take a day. But some people really do need a day. Yeah. So. But back to, you know, (laughs) back to the the institution. Um, So. Another thing I was just thinking about was education provides us with a certain type of power, and people use it differently in classrooms, Mm -hmm. but it's also transformative. So what do you think that you're currently doing with your research? And I know it's like shifting and it moves in different ways that's either transforming you or um, transforming the students around you or... Do you think something that can reach out to a broader audience, um, like outside of academia? So what do you think in regards to while you're thinking about your research question and the things that you're doing, how do you think that works? I think it does a little bit of all three. I feel like I have personally just like grown as a a better human being <laughs> just because I've had to like sit down and question all of these things and consider like what specifically as like a researcher I'm doing that might be harmful or as an educator what I might be doing that's harmful and thinking about like okay if these are the things that I've been conditioned and socialized to believe that like I have to do um like for example like if I'm like in grad school people are going to tell you that you need to like read all of this stuff and read everything I'm like well that's harmful for some people because that, that it's just impossible to like do that and I began to realize I was like okay there are things that I need to prioritize that I need to read and like as an educator like I just got on talking about like things that I want my students to prioritize and as um as in terms of like um the community I feel like for me my research one thing that I'm big about doing is making my research accessible to people outside of the academy and that's mostly because like my research is about people outside the academy mm-hmm. it's about people who have been victims of police violence people who have been incarcerated people who are activists community organizers people who like want to enact social change in their communities so in my opinion i'm like it doesn't really do them any good if mm-hmm. i'm writing stuff about them for them with them it doesn't do them any good if i'm writing stuff that is like exclusive to just people who are like in the academy so for me it's important to if i want to help transform these communities around like social justice and activism anti-racism all this stuff i want them to be considered just as experts i am and i want them to have access to what i have access to so if i have stuff that i can give to them because they're not in the academy but the stuff that would be helpful to them i'm gonna give them my stuff because Mm -hmm we are in solidarity with each other for this cause and it just it would just be 
hypocritical for me, like, oh, I'm writing about activism and, like, I'm considering myself to be a scholar activist, but then, like, when the time comes down to it, I'm like, well, I'm going to keep all of my stuff as an academic over here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write for people who are just in academia. I'm going to write for stuff that would just, like, lift me up as a scholar and I'm not really, like, doing the work to help the people who I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. It just seems pointless and hypocritical when I would be a drifter. So. <laughs> and so while you're going about this, have you had... And if you don't want to share, that's fine. But what would you recommend to those who are, you know, I guess swayed by the opinions of, like, their supervisors, their mentors, and they're not on the same page? Mm. How do you think black bodies kind of need to go about navigating that situation? Because I'll, I'll speak for myself. I did not know how to navigate this. Like you, yeah. it's like you're thrown into it, and then then you get the lingo, and then like someone gives you like a nonverbal sign, and you're like, oh, okay, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you're telling me. <laughs> like, so what would you say about navigating those like the tension of following your objective and your aim versus maybe someone who's influencing you to go in a different direction? I would say if at all, if you can help it, to not work with people who are not going to, like, be supportive of whatever kind of, like, research agenda you have. It's it's difficult for, for a lot of people just because, like, once you're in a program, you're in a program, mm-hmm. unless you decide to, like, go to a different program. And, you know, people on websites and at, like, an open house might be different once you actually, like, get into the program and you might start, like, developing your identity and, like, the research that you want to do. So I would just be very careful about, like, I wish, like, I came in thinking I was going to work with certain people who I ended up being, like, I don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> so um, it's it's something that I feel like you probably can't help when mm-hmm. you're, like, applying. But, like, once you get in... I would say the next step would be to find, like, your people. Mm-hmm. And for me, what's been helpful is to find people who are supportive of the things that I want to do. And if you don't have people in your, like, department or in, like, your university who can be helpful, like, I find people outside of my department, mm-hmm. and I found people outside of my university. I just went to a conference, and I found people who were, like, we do the same kind of work, we've had the same kind of struggles, they're like, let me help you because I'm like, you know, years above. I went through the same thing you're going through. Mm. So let me help you. So finding your people is probably the most helpful thing that has, like, helped me through, like, getting through <laughs> grad school. Um, because it, it just seems like a waste of your livelihood to yeah. be in a situation. And some people, they can't help it whether it's not to go, like, if you're, like, like, if I were in a program right now three years in and I realized I was like, this is not, like, the environment that is going to help me, I mean, I probably would just stick it through because I only have, like, two years left. So, yeah. but if you think about those things, like, preemptively, it might be able to, like, help you, like, mm-hmm. not be harmed as much. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And do you think if you had one wish into academia (laughs) in terms of whether it was like tools um support programs what would you want to see that is an easy question i would want to see 
more money to graduate <laughs> students. That's, that's, I would, that's no lie. I, like, like, right now, there are, like, a whole bunch of, like, strikes going on, and mm-hmm. people are starting to, like, have unions and stuff. I feel like it's, like, long overdue for, like, graduate students and non-tenure-track faculty to, like, be paid what they should be paid. But, like, from a graduate student perspective, if I could have one wish, it would be being paid what I'm supposed to be paid. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the same research as these, like, tenure-track professors who are getting six figures. Um, We're sitting into the same journals. We're going to the same conferences. We're teaching the same classes. We are working with the same people. The only difference is that, like, I don't have the degree yet, but we're still doing the almost exact... I'm serving on committees. We're doing Mm -hmm. the exact same kind of labor. The only difference is that, like, you know, they have a PhD. And I'm not asking for, like, $200,000. <laughs> I'm just asking for grad students yeah. to be paid a wage that can help them, like, live comfortably while they're in graduate school. They should not be living, like, below the poverty. Well, no one should be living the, below the poverty line. But, like, we should not be being paid poverty wages and mm-hmm. then not being paid in the summer and then also being told don't get a second job because mm. you need to focus on your research but at the same time because you, you won't be too scholarly exactly so my wish would be people should be paid what they should be paid there's there's no point in um in going through these struggles and then having i mean it's then you also have the mental crisis, you know? Yeah. And then and then your insurance is like, ah, we don't do therapy. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that would be something that I think just worldwide people would appreciate. Mm-hmm. Because the stories of people who have at least three jobs and, a P- and doing their PhD. Um, Which is a whole job in itself. It really, it really is. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. And just, is there anything as of now that is lifting your spirits, whether it's a song, a bu- maybe a person too, <laughs> a song, a book, <laughs> um, a piece of art, a show, something that helps you get through this program with some sanity? <laughs> um, or maybe it's the community, whatever, something that's yeah. helping you power through. I, there are a few things. One, I am lucky enough to have a cohort of people who I genuinely am friends with. We have a group chat. We text every single day. (laughs) We've been texting since the first semester. And um, I would probably go insane if I did not have other grad students to just, like, vent and complain and also just, like, support each other. Um, There have been times where I've been, like, where I've had things happen in my life in grad school, and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm here by myself. My family is, like, across the country. And I've had people in, like, my cohort who are, like, my best friends who have, like, been able to help me. So um, try and get a cohort that is <laughs> <laughs> almost like family. Um, of course, i got to mention Beyonce. She, her out- <laughs> Renaissance, <laughs> Renaissance has gotten me through the... Uh, this academic year um (laughs) so there is that um i spend a lot of time watching tv so that is like my pastime to unwind and relax so a bunch of tv shows and then i am currently seeing a person and um, they also make me 
pretty happy. They are also in graduate school, so we also... That is, that's very helpful, because yeah. you don't have to do a lot of explaining. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> weird to explain grad school to people who are not in grad school. Really, and you know, just most of my, yeah, most of my loved ones, and I know I'm developing a community, but most of my loved ones are outside, like, they got their college degree, and they were like, peace, like, we're done, we're not doing yeah. this, mm-hmm. and they think, like, once I graduate, like, it's over. Like, okay, I get my doctorate and then I just walk off. I'm like, no, that's that's not how this works. Like, I'm in it for life now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's that's really helpful. But thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Um, your, all your information and things will be in the bio. Um, but yeah, that's where the people will find you. Yeah. <laughs>